Hey, good morning, Crossway family. I hope you are doing well. And um, these are some interesting times we are going through. We had fires last week, and then yesterday we had hail in parts of uh, Orange County and thunder and lightning. And so whoever was praying for rain, uh, thank you for that. And, uh, we, and I just want to thank all of you, our church family, for being so uh, nimble and flexible. And so you know, meeting and, and, you know, having to postpone our in-person for a week and uh, meeting online and so on. So it just shows a lot about our church. And so I just want to thank you all. I want to thank our staff, all of our volunteers, our worship team, and everyone who uh, has been so flexible. Thank you so much. I know it's not easy. Um, and so I want to thank you for that. And as Pastor Paul mentioned, starting next week, um, we're, we're really excited because we're going to offer... Um, our worship at 10 o'clock at both sites in person and also for our youth group they'll be worshiping in person at 10 o'clock as well and so uh, the youth group if you have kids who are in youth group um, and they've been logging in on zoom i'm sure they are sick and tired of zoom as uh, they've been on it all day for school so we want to do it in person slash it'll be a hybrid slash online so whatever is happening in person uh, will also be on Zoom if they uh, would rather stay home and worship. Uh, but so next week at Brea and Irvine at 10 o'clock, we'll all gather. We'll have uh, songs together. And then the youth group will go into their area. And John and Jean, they'll be leading the youth ministry there. And it'll also be on Zoom. So it'll be in person and Zoom for the youth. Um, and our online worship will be at 10 o'clock as well. So um, it's kind of the golden hour. Uh, looking forward to seeing some of you um, and uh, looking forward to that. Also, on Thanksgiving Sunday, as Pastor Paul mentioned, we'll be having a special service. So if you could send us what you are grateful for, uh, that is uh, helpful. And also on that day, we're going to be having a light lunch available so you could kind of socially distance but have lunch. It's nice to eat somehow together, outdoors, spread apart. And so it'll be a simple lunch. I think it'll, it's like turkey sandwiches right so we'll have some kind of form of turkey so um, that is on thanksgiving sunday so uh, make sure you keep that on your calendar for the 22nd all right we're looking forward to that um, i just wanted to spend just a moment and pray also for our country as um, all these things are happening and the leadership looks like transitions are under uh, progress and so uh, we just want to spend a moment and pray and i want to encourage you whatever your political uh, leanings might be, right? to keep uh, our leaders in prayer and to put your ultimate hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, right? To, uh, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Right? So we are called to call, uh, pray for those in leadership, uh, not just for those we like or those we voted for, but for all. And so we want to be able to do that. So I want to encourage you this week to spend a little bit of time in prayer uh, and to pray uh, for our country, the leaders of our country, and all that is going on as we see in the news these days. Um, today we look at this passage, um, and it was uh, the end of chapter 2. And we see here a picture of the humanity of Christ. 
And I want to highlight two things today. One is the humanity of Christ, his nature of who he is. And we can get very theological, and there are volumes and uh, books and books upon this understanding of who Christ is. But the humanity of Christ, and then we'll see the practical implications of that. Why he became human, uh, what does that look like for us? How he now knows suffering, he knows our suffering, he cares for us, he gives us hope. And we'll look at that at the end. But we'll spend a little bit of time in this story. The story is of Jesus uh, as a 12-year-old going down to the temple during one of the holidays. And as he is in the temple, um, as uh, you know, Mary and Joseph and all the people from Nazareth are heading back after. And it would be a big caravan, a bunch of people going back. Once they make the day's journey, they go back home, they realize he's not here. And so they thought maybe he was with others, maybe he was with friends um, and it was very common for a big, big group of people to move together. So they head back and they find him in the temple, listening and answering questions. Um, and uh, it is at this point he says, I must be in my father's house. And so this is kind of a unique story, right? It's only in Luke. It's a story about him before he becomes a teenager. It's an uh, important time in his life. He is growing up and we see the humanity of Christ. But also we see that by Jesus, the incarnate, right, the incarnation of Christ, the story that we've been reading and going through, we see that now he understands fully what we are going through. He knows what you are experiencing. Um, he became the perfect mediator between God and man. He became the perfect priest. And so in Orthodox Christianity, we believe this about the nature of Christ. And there's been a lot of heresies, and this is very important you get this correct. We believe Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. So he's not 50-50. He's not just a man that was um, you know, endowed with some kind of spiritual gift. He's not some kind of angelic being who looked like a human. He was fully God eternal, the second person of the Trinity. And then at the birth, he became, he took on flesh. The incarnation has happened. And he becomes 100% man. 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And I know this illustration doesn't do it justice, but um, you know, the, the picture of, the thought of my identity. Right? I think of myself, I, in 1999, I became husband to my wife, Sharon. So at that point, I became husband. She became my wife. And so that was added to me. I was still the same guy. I was still... Uh, the one that was serving at a church. I still had my identity. I was still a child to my parents and so on. But this new identity was given to me. All right? In 2001, 2004, I became dad to Carissa and Ashley. And so I became now dad. doesn't mean that I was no longer a husband, but now I became dad, 100% dad. I'm not just a part of me was dad, not just a part of me was husband, but I was fully husband, fully dad in this way. And now there's a lot of uh, problems with that illustration, but that does give us a little bit of a picture of what we are talking about, that he is 100% God, 100% man, and he fully understands us as a human being. Right? Uh, we often say, and we find comfort in knowing, boy, boy it's nice because this guy is a real person. You know, it's nice to know the real person, and that person's down to earth. That person is a real human being. And we say, oh, it's nice. We could connect in this way. Uh, I remember in high school, I think back on this, in my senior year in high school, I had a kidney surgery, and I talked about this before. 
and it was a football accident. I had a kidney surgery. I was in the hospital for a few weeks, and uh, they found out it was a blessing in disguise that I had a defective kidney. So by being tackled, it actually uh, showed uh, the, the defect in my kidney, and they were able to fix it and so on. But it was two weeks in the hospital, I had, um, and I had tubes coming out of the sides, draining the blood and the urine, and so literally I would jokingly say, but I would have to go pee, I would say, and it would come out of the side in a, uh, in a bag, and I would have to drain the bag, and I had to go through that ordeal uh, for months. And I would tell people, but it's interesting, right, because at that point, how many teenagers have gone through some kind of big surgery and so I didn't get much of care or full understanding right? most people said oh I said, what was it again you had a liver transplant what did you have appendicitis and people would, they didn't remember um, and I would remind them, no it was a kidney they said oh so you have no kidneys I said no 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 I got it fixed it's good as new and they say oh okay and they'd forget and so on and it was uh, obviously not being fully understood as frustrating. There was one person I knew in high school, and I didn't know, uh, but this person, she had uh, kidney issues. She had actually, it was far worse, kidney disease, and so she had gone at the hospital for kidney uh, surgeries and all of this. And so there was that moment. It was like, you understand, and I understand what you're going through. Oh, my gosh. And so we would talk kidneys uh, when I would see her at school, just about kidneys. We want to talk about kidneys because you fully understand because you went through this. Now, all of us in life have gone through something. And we've met someone who's gone through the same thing. They say, oh, this is what it's like. I understand you. Right? Whether it's a, a room full of recovering alcoholics say, I understand the struggle, or a struggling parent that's dealing with the heartache of disappointment or heartbreak from something that happened to the child. They say, I understand. And people that have gone through the same things could sit and say, I fully understand you. And that's what the humanity of Christ points us to, that he fully understands us. There's a famous uh, quote from Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a first century a church bishop, a leader in the church. And this quote says this, and I just want to read this. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. Now, this quote has been taken out of context often where people will say, see, you need to live a full life, right? God is, is glorified through your life when you live a full uh, human life, when you experience life and you go and run the marathons or you go travel the world and so on. But what Irenaeus had to deal with was during his times in the first century, there was a lot of false teachers. They, uh, of, uh, they would teach what's called Gnosticism. Right? The Gnostic sects would often teach, and the Gnosticism taught that uh, what was spiritual was good, but what was material was bad. And so they taught that Jesus actually wasn't a human being. And the Gnostics would teach Jesus wasn't fully human, and the person that died on the cross was a spiritual uh, being, someone that looked like a human, but he was just in the form of a spirit. He was like an angel. He wasn't fully human. He doesn't fully uh, relate with us. And to combat this heresy, it is where Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. This is speaking about the humanity of Christ, that the glory of God is the human person fully alive. And we see that and in our story. Luke tells us a wonderful story uh, from the birth of Christ, prior to the birth of Christ, right in chapter 1 and on, but 
from the birth of Christ all the way now to his, till he's 12 years old. And then starting in chapter 3, we're talking about his ministry as an adult. This is the last time we hear about him um, as a child, but we see the progression of him growing up. And by Luke telling us this, Luke is showing us a picture of the humanity of Christ, that he fully understands you, that he is not just perfect God who is distant, who is creator, who is judge, but he's also friend. He's also familiar with our pain. He also cares for us. He knows firsthand what we are going through because he is fully human as well. I want you to open your Bibles to our passage that Pastor Paul read for us uh, in Luke 2, 42 and on. And I want to read a little and talk a little uh, on this, right? Uh, verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, he went up according to custom. Uh, verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. So they're heading back to Nazareth, as I mentioned, and now they're staying there, and he stays behind in Jerusalem. It's interesting that Jesus here is described as the boy Jesus. This wasn't 30-year-old Jesus or 33-year-old Jesus. This is the boy Jesus. Luke is very uh, technical and careful when you read this passage. And you find that he uses a different word for baby, child, boy in just this one chapter to point out how he is growing. All right? uh, one of the things about this pandemic is that when we had our Halloween uh, fall festival. I haven't seen some of the kids now in six months. And uh, seeing some of the kids from our church, and I've seen them growing. And you always hear this, right? When you were a kid, we always heard uh, some grown up saying, boy, you're growing up. Look how much you've grown up. And now I catch myself saying that, right? And after six, seven months of not seeing some of these toddlers, now they're getting big. Some of them are getting real big and mustaches and all. You know, they're just getting big, right? And you say, wow, they're just growing up. There's a, a kind of a, uh, something we marvel at when we see people, uh, children growing up in this way. And he's described. So in this verse, in verse 43, he is described as boy. Pais is the word. The, boy, the word boy is to describe, this isn't a toddler. This isn't a baby boy. This is a bigger child. You might call him a junior. You might go get a special menu at a restaurant. It might be for the teens or the juniors, right? Um, it's not just babies, right? So that word is used. In verse 16, in Luke 2.16, it says the baby lying in a manger. The word baby is used. Uh, brepos, it's the word for a little baby. And so within a chapter, you see now a little baby. And in verse 40, the word Little boy is used, or child, in chapter 2, verse 40. The child grew and became strong. Paidon is the word. So it's another word. So Luke is using different words in the vocabulary to describe the progression of the growth of Christ. And here is the last time he is described as the boy, becomes, he becomes, before he becomes the man here. Uh, the boy, the 12-year-old, almost a teenager. And when you turn 13, right before... Uh, he turns 13, he is at the temple. This is right before they have the bar mitzvah, and he becomes now a member of the temple. He is old enough to now join the temple. He is of the age of accountability in this sense, and they find him. And so they go back and they find him. Verse 46, and after three days they found him in the temple, uh, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
So they found them in the temple. Three days. So it took a day to go back to Nazareth. They get there in the caravan. They said, okay, where's Jesus? He's not a baby. They're not holding his hand. He's thought he was with his friends or someone else. He's not there. So they take another day's journey back to Jerusalem. They take a day to now search around. They find him back in the temple. So three days. And they find him in the temple. And the way he is perceiving, the way he is answering, everyone is amazed at him. Right? So you can imagine they're saying, well, the Bible says this, and in the law it said this, and in the Psalms it says this. And he said, well, technically, it's not what my father said. You know, and so you can imagine some of the things he was saying and explaining to them. And I wonder what it was like. But in this humanity, we see in verse 52 of our text, Luke 2, 52, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he kept growing. It's just, uh, he increased even in human wisdom. He increased in stature. He was growing. So he really took on the form of a human, a form of a man. And he grew in this way. Now, again, in this story, uh, we see a picture of his divinity. Remember, he's 100% uh, human and 100% divine. And we see a, a little picture of his divinity, right? When they find him, uh, in chapter 2, verse 48, uh, Mary kind of sounds like she's scolding him a little bit. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Speaking of Joseph, right, and Mary, right? Mary's speaking, mom is talking. Speaks refers to Joseph as father. And this is the last time Joseph is mentioned. And so tradition tells us maybe he had passed away uh, somewhere in his childhood. Uh, but we see she refers to Joseph as her father. And then he replies, Jesus replies, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's a reminder of his divinity. It's a reminder of who his father was. It was God the father. Mary was his mother. Joseph was not his father. And it's a reminder of his divine background. It's a reminder of who he is, that he is the Messiah that comes. And he says here in that little phrase, verse 49, and if you have a journal, you can underline it, I must be in my father's house, that little phrase. In the book of Luke, there are a bunch of I must statements that Jesus says. And a lot of these I must statements that he proclaims point to his divinity. Um, he says in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news. He says in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Luke 24.44, uh, that everything written about me in the law and Moses, uh, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So it's all the must are pointing to his divinity. And so we see this here. And then it tells us in 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. We see Mary again saying she was treasuring these things in her heart. But you see, the boy Jesus Christ is submissive at this time. Now this should shock us uh, uh, when we read this. This is the Messiah, 100% God, 100% man, Jesus Christ, and he is willingly being submissive. Um, he has taken on the form of a child. 
and he continues to do so. So in this wonderful little story that we often overlook in the whole Christmas story, and then we jump sometimes straight after the birth of Christ, and we jump straight into his teachings and so on, we see here um, a picture of his humanity. And his humanity, the human side of Jesus Christ, the human nature, rather, of Jesus Christ, uh, helps us to know that he understands suffering. He knows, and I just want to highlight, he, he is familiar with suffering, right? in general. And so all of us here collectively could bring our suffering to him, and he knows it. Uh, we know this so well, but in Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet speaks of the Messiah to come, and he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This was his description. And often for many people today, many people in our country today, our, their picture of Christ is not someone that is filled with sorrows and acquainted with griefs. They want someone who is rich and famous and powerful that would give them what they wish for. But the description of him is someone who is acquainted with grief. That word acquainted is probably too weak of a word from the original language. It wasn't that he just knew it a little. It means to know something intimately to have a first-hand experience in this. The word to know, uh, yada, is the original word in the Hebrew. The same word is used in Genesis 4.1 when it says, Adam knew Eve and they conceived. Right? And so it's the idea, even in a, a husband-wife sexual relationship, that they, they knew each other in an intimate way. And that word is used there. That same word is used here as he was acquainted with grief. It's not something you read about. It's not just a documentary you might watch. Uh, some of us, we might watch a short clip on YouTube or social media about someone going through certain things, and you might be moved a little bit. But it takes a lot to move us, right? The music is there and the narration and all of the story. And say, oh, that's, that's so sad to see a child in this state or to see that this person lost this. But to be acquainted is to say, I've gone through it myself. What words and books could try to describe, I've experienced myself. And all of you have experienced something. All of you are acquainted with some kind of grief, some kind of loss, some kind of heartache, some kind of pain. You have your tears. And it is at that point that God says, I know. I know what grief is like. I know what hardship is like. There's a short book by uh, theologian philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff. Nicholas Walterstorff, the famed philosopher, uh, had lost his son when his son was 25 years old to a hiking accident. And so when, after he had lost his son, Eric, he wrote a series of essays to try to relate with parents who have lost their children. It's a powerful book. It's one of the most uh, powerful books and one of my favorite books um, that I've read because it's, it's just you get a, a, a description of what he goes through and he talks about God and there's a little quote I just want to share with you from this book God is not only the God of the sufferers but the God who suffers it is said of God that no one can behold his face and live I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live a friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live or perhaps his sorrow is splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. 
And so this theologian talks about suffering. He talks about how much he suffered. He says, if God is acquainted with grief, his suffering is so strong that we cannot behold his face and live. It's not just his glory, but maybe the suffering is the glory. And he points it out in this way. So God is splendor. God is glorious. God is powerful. God is victorious. Amen to all of that. But at the same time, he is a God who suffers. He is one who knows suffering. And the second point is this, and this becomes very personal. He knows your suffering. He knows. As simple as that. What are you going through? He knows. What are you crying over? He knows. What have you shed a tear lately about? He knows exactly what that is like. He knows. He knows everything that you are going through. He knows your circumstances. He knows all that is in your heart. He knows what keeps you up at night and so on. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 8. And the Bible talks about tears often, right? It tells us Jesus wept, right, in the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, but all throughout the Bible talks about tears. And I love this little verse here. It talks about God and how he keeps all of our tears. He says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, and they not in your book. Uh, they not in your book. Right? He says he's put our tears my tears in his bottle. He says he's kept count of all of my tossings. Keeping count here, that little uh, word, is an accounting term. It's literally to keep count, keep track. You know, how much did I make? How many of these do I have? It's to keep count. And whatever hardships we have, it's like every tear we have shed, he has kept it in a bottle, the Bible says. He's kept count about what you're going through. And during this time, during this COVID and this difficult time, there's a universal hardship. Uh, usually when I preach about this, it's occasional, right? There's someone here is going through something. Someone there might be going through something. But maybe a good majority life is pretty good. But right now, all of us are going through some difficult times. One psychologist describes our current situation like this, and I thought it was said so well. You think you're doing okay, when out of the blue it hits, a vague uneasiness, a nagging awareness that something isn't right. You're waking up in the middle of the night, you miss people, but you don't call them. Fear, loneliness, uncertainty, or some other aspect of the pandemic, and the changes you've had to make is getting to you. Isn't that all of us? Uh, a vague uneasiness, a nagging awareness that something isn't right. As you and as we are going through these things, whatever it is, He knows. And He has kept all of our tears in this bottle of His. He is watching over and He knows. Not only does He know, which is comforting, but He also cares. And this is another comforting point. He cares for us. Um, it's one thing to know. And if you've gone to see the doctor for any procedure, surgery, whatever it is, um, it's nice to have someone who cares. Usually we're satisfied with someone who simply knows. They know the diagnosis, they know what has to be done, and here it is, and they hand it off to the nurse to now carry it out. But if you have a doctor or a nurse that says, not only do I know what you're going through, but I care for you. How are you? And if you've ever been hospitalized um, and uh, maybe you've had a, a nurse or a doctor that spent some time, remembered your name, asked how you're doing, 
uh, and show that they care, it means so much more. And we often judge a doctor or a dentist or someone that's caring for us, not just simply by how smart and what they know, but we judge them by how much they care. Oh, they're personable, they're nice, they're caring. They followed up with a phone call. They asked me how I'm doing, and uh, they shared with me. They spent time with me. And we say, boy, that person's a good doctor, that person's a good dentist, or whatever it is. Caring. He cares for you. The humanity of Christ shows us that not only does he know these things, but he cares as well. Uh, the Bible says over and over that he has compassion. And in the Gospel of Luke, this word is used several times. That the idea of compassion, the word compassion, uh, it literally means having the insides of your body being moved or shaken. It means something that comes from the depths of a person, not just here. And we've all been there. We've all been through a phone call where you have to call customer service and they put you on hold and you're on there now for 45, 50 minutes and they don't really care. Uh, they'll put you on hold for any reason. And you're trying to explain what went wrong with my cell phone and I need help with this. Just hold. But to have someone that just not only knows but cares and has compassion, someone that'll look you in the eye and says, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He knows what we are going through. When we pray to Him, He is moved, because He cares, He has compassion on us. I just want to highlight this word, compassion. Luke 7, 13, right? Uh, speaking of the woman, He had compassion on her. Right? Do not weep. Uh, Luke 10.33, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the person that was beat up on the side. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Levites and the priests walked by. They knew what had happened to him, but they walked on. This person had compassion. He was moved. And not only that, in Luke 15.20, in the passage we know so well of the prodigal son, when the son comes to his senses and he comes back, uh, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's probably a, a, a feeling that only a parent might know, to have compassion, to be moved. Right, A parent that is more joyful than the child when they succeed. A parent that cries more than the child when they are hurt. And this is the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has gone through these things himself. But he doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't just collect our tears. He removes it. He gives hope. Right? He gives hope to us. So he knows that we are crying. He knows and he collects our tears. But also he removes these tears. Right? Psalm 116 refers to the whole idea of him removing the tears from our eyes. That we will not cry. Psalm 30 verse 11. You have turned... From, for me, my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. The clothing, they would wear the type of clothing to represent the events in their life. And the sackcloth and ash would be worn when they had lost someone or they were repenting before God. But the clothes you would wear in gladness as the son that came back and the father, first thing he does is he dresses him. He dresses him. You have turned 
for me my morning into dancing, he says. He gives us the ultimate hope. So what does this mean for us? This means that we can go to him and find grace and mercy. Uh, these days, all right, and I read an article that talked about the self-care industry. Right? The word self-help, that phrase has changed now to self-care. And it's a $10 billion industry. And they say people today uh, spend twice as much as the previous generation on self-care. So whether it's an app to help you sleep or keep track of what you're eating or running or uh, how you're sitting in front of a monitor and things to help you uh, in, your, in your appearance or whatever it is, we spend this much. Uh, Dr. Guy Winch in a TED Talk a few years back talked about self-care and he says that most of our self-care, this $10 billion, most of it goes to our physical needs and that's it. He says at age five we were taught to take care and brush our teeth but not to care for our soul. And let me encourage you to practice self-care for yourself, to go to Him, uh, not just for your physical needs, not just when you need some help in the circumstances of life, but to take care of your spirit. And I close with this verse in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. And let me invite you as I read this, maybe just take a moment, close your eyes, and let these words sink into the depths of your heart. It speaks about Christ as the one who could sympathize with us and how we ought to draw close to Him. And the words go like this, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. And just let me encourage you to just close your eyes and hear the Word of God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me encourage you this week to draw near to the one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me encourage you to draw near and receive mercy from the one who is waiting upon you. Let me encourage you at this time to seek him daily like a tree planted by streams of water. Produce fruit by finding grace that will help you in times of need. And so we look to the humanity of Christ and we run to him today, for he is with us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we think of you today. We read a story about you when you are 12 years old. The humility of who you are, the humanity we see here. And so, Lord, we run to you. You are the high priest who knows all of our weaknesses, who sympathizes with us, yet without sin. You are the one that offers help, mercy, and grace when we need it. And oh, how we need it these days. How the church, we need it these days. So Lord, would you be with us today? You know our tears. You know our joys. You know our weaknesses. You care for us. You care for us more than we could care for ourselves. So we come to you. So every day, God, give us uh, the diligence. Give us, Lord, time to seek you to hear your voice by reading your word, to report to you, to share to you what is on our hearts, because you hear us. Teach us what that is like to walk with you in this way. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, for coming in the form of a man to save us um, in this way. We thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.